Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire. Joining me is the great Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to talk with you. Hi, Brandon. I'm not sure how great I am, but uh, always nice to see you and talk to you. Well, I, I call you the great bishop, and you recently had the chance to perform one of the very important functions of a bishop for the very first yeah. time. Uh, after three years of being a bishop, you finally mm-hmm. ordained your first priest. Tell us about that. It was a it was a thrill. It was a great honor. Um, you're right. I mean, it's one of the maybe the distinctive thing that a, a bishop qua bishop can do is ordain priests. And the Dominicans asked me, I think it was last year, if I could ordain their guys. And there was a, a schedule problem last year, so I said, well, how about let's make sure we get it for 2019. So I went out to uh, Catholic U, my old stomping grounds, and um, stayed with the Dominicans at their house of studies. And then on Saturday. Uh, ordained, had the great privilege of ordaining six wonderful young guys. I had dinner with them the night before, so I had a chance to meet them and talk to them, and very impressive uh, young guys. And and what a thrill it was. I mean, that great basilica, which I know well, graduated twice from that basilica, went to Mass there all the time when I was a kid, you know, uh, and to preside there as a bishop, and uh, even though, and I've attended, you know, a hundred priest ordinations over the years, but it's different when you're actually doing it. And uh, I had a wonderful MC, a master of ceremonies, who you know kind of walked me through and just stood right there. Now sit down, now stand up, now put the hat on, and now you're doing this, you know, because you don't automatically. Oh, what now? What comes next in this ceremony? But it was just a, a thrill for me, and um, uh, delighted to meet those guys, and and then to feel this bond. I mean, that my. Um, I'll, I'll be connected to them for the whole of their priesthood. So uh, it was it was marvelous. I know some people have asked you before, when, as a priest, whenever you're consecrating the Eucharist, do you feel something like the moment you consecrate the host? How about during ordination? Was it, do you feel something when you're putting your hands on these guys and, and consecrating them? No, not in, not in the sense of like an electrical uh, surge or something. But <laughs> you no, know, no, I certainly I, I certainly got into it. Um, you know, emotionally, I would say, uh, but I'm always careful to make a distinction between the the objectivity of the sacraments. Even you know the most wicked bishop who's feeling nothing whatsoever, but is doing the ritual of the church and has the ontological capacity to ordain successfully ordains, and that's part of the beauty of what Augustine taught us. You know, in the anti uh, Donatist uh, controversy. So, no, it's not like it's dependent upon me. If I don't feel a rush of enthusiasm, they're not really ordained. That's why the church, you know, and I'll I'll make a maybe somewhat provocative remark here, but we've never liked the hyper stress on um, what Ronald Knox called enthusiasm. You know, Uh, in some Christian uh, denominations, there's a, a great stress upon it. You know, unless and until you feel the inrushing of the Holy Spirit, you're not really justified or until you you emotionally enter into the experience. We've always been reticent about that. Thank God, you know, because I don't want religion dependent upon something as evanescent as my feelings, you know. So it, it was indeed for me a very moving experience. Uh, but the validity, thank God, of the ordination didn't depend on my being moved by it, you know. Well, God bless these six new Dominican priests, yeah. these new sons of Bishop Barron. Uh, we wish them all the best. 
Bishop, yeah. today we're going to talk about the Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment seems like a perennial source of conversation at the academic level, at the popular level. There have been several recent books, uh, I've seen them in Barnes & Noble and Amazon, praising the Enlightenment. It seems like there's sort of a resurgence in interest today, and we're going to get to one of those books in particular in a minute, but I thought we could spend the first half of our conversation just talking about the Enlightenment in general, what it is, why it yeah. matters. So let's start with a basic question. What was the Enlightenment? Well, it's an intellectual movement that emerged in the, let's say, 17th, mostly 18th, and a little bit beginning of the 19th century would be the, the period. Thinkers such as you know Descartes, Leibniz, Spinoza, Kant, Hegel, uh, in our country, people like Thomas Jefferson, someone like Voltaire, someone like Tom Paine, Benjamin Franklin, would all be Enlightenment figures. You know, I'd say, Brandon, to speak, again, very generically, um, two major strains in Enlightenment thought, one scientific, the other political, both are very important. So the scientific Enlightenment, the emergence of the modern physical sciences, the um, scientific experimental method that we're so accustomed to. If I'll put it in classical terms, the shift from a more um, from a greater focus on final causality and formal causality to efficient and material causality. So one of the marks of, of classical Aristotelian science was a great stress upon purpose, finality, and also formality, the formal structure of things. With the scientific revolution, those two classical Aristotelian causes are bracketed, and the great stress is placed on the material cause, what things are made of, and the efficient cause, where they come from. Now think of someone like Newton, a, a classic Enlightenment scientific figure. So the rise of the what we call the modern physical experimental sciences, I would say, is a major strain of Enlightenment thought. The other great strain is the political one. So now think of especially the French Revolution and the American Revolution, are two great expressions of the Enlightenment uh, emphasis upon freedom of the individual, uh, rights that are given to each person, uh, the overcoming of the divine right of kings, the overcoming of the structures of the ancien regime, um, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly. Think of our a bill of rights would be great uh, political expressions of enlightenment ideas. Think of a figure like uh, Thomas Jefferson in our country or James Madison, these, these great theoreticians of a, of a modern democracy. They'd be expressing a lot of the political ideals of the enlightenment. Go back to uh, maybe the greatest philosopher of the enlightenment, Immanuel Kant, who has that famous essay, what is enlightenment, right? And he defines it basically as moving out of our intellectual kindergarten, so he thought the human race had been for too long in a sort of childlike, um, under the tutelage of, of authorities. And, and therefore, he said, um, um, dare to know. Saperi Aude, dare to know on your own terms, scientifically and politically. That, to me, kind of sums up a lot of the spirit of the Enlightenment. That's, again, a really quick um, characterization. I know early on, the Enlightenment caused a lot of friction with the church because the Enlightenment placed the stress on what we can know and discover through the light of our own reason. Let's not rely on these old dusty institutions and authorities to tell yep. us how to live and what to believe. But how did the Catholic Church respond to the Enlightenment and to some of these figures you've mentioned? It's a very, very complex and subtle question you're raising. It's easy to say, oh, the church was just against the Enlightenment. And there are indeed a lot of church statements that would run counter 
to Enlightenment principles. Now think, for example, of the First Vatican Council, which has a lot to say about types of rationalism emerging from the Enlightenment. So clear polemics against uh, Kant and his school, Hegel and his school and others. The revival in the wake of Vatican I of classical Thomism was seen as an intellectual response to a lot of the philosophical movements uh, of the Enlightenment. So there is indeed that. The church from the beginning was, was reticent about the Enlightenment. However, it would be simplistic to say the church simply stood against it. Because I would argue, Brandon, and this is going to take us maybe too far afield, but both of the strains that we're talking about, the scientific and the political, do indeed have roots within classical Catholicism. See, one of the marks I think that's negative in the way we, we appropriate enlightenment is we tend to believe the simplistic uh, myth of origins, right? That in these two great strains, uh, modernity emerged out of a great struggle against religion. So there was religion standing for this old, stodgy, Aristotelian science and the great scientific figures, paradigmatically Galileo, right, who are now emerging from this terrible intellectual oppression. Now I'll go to the political side of the of the equation. Um, modern political freedom and democracy and, and overcoming the Ancien Regime was against the resistance of, of the church. Some truth in that characterization? Yeah, some truth in it. But it's not the whole story. Because both those strains, as I said, can be traced to a degree back into the classical uh, Christian arrangement. As I've often argued, you and I have talked about this, the modern sciences emerge precisely out of a Christian thought matrix. The, the great uh, early scientists learned their mathematics and their astronomy and their, and their physics precisely in church-sponsored universities. Now, was there something really new about it? Yes, there was. I don't want to under, underplay that. But the myth that there was this great you know, twilight struggle between the old and the new, that's way too simplistic. Thinking, too, of around the time of Galileo, the number of priests, especially in the Jesuit order, who were deeply involved in the emergence of the modern sciences. As I've often argued, too, look at almost all the major early scientific figures. They were all religious people, and not just sort of in a trivial or superficial way, but they were deeply involved in religion. So that. And just a quick remark about the political side. Many draw attention to people like Robert Bellarmine, uh, kind of, you might say, an early enlightenment figure in a way. Much of his political thinking uh, sounds like Thomas Jefferson and sounds like the, the revolutionary figures of the 18th century. Um, the so-called Whig Thomas tradition that finds elements of the modern political arrangements in Thomas Aquinas. So my point there is I think it's a subtle game, a subtle story, and we should resist simplistic tellings of it. Let's fast forward two or three hundred years after the Enlightenment is launched. Where do we see the effects of the Enlightenment today? Where do we see its lasting influence? Well, all over and in very positive ways. Who among us, honestly, would want to go back to pre-Enlightenment political arrangements? I wouldn't. I mean, I'm in no sense hankering for a monarchy in our country. I don't want to go back before we had a Bill of Rights. I don't want to go back before the Declaration of Independence. I don't want to go back before those arrangements. Those, to me, were enormously powerful breakthroughs of, of the good. And here I'd follow someone like, um, like Paul Tillich, the Protestant thinker, who said, just as 
in the ancient world, the breakthrough of, of philosophy was, in fact, a movement of the Holy Spirit. And, and Aquinas would say that. Thomas says any manifestation of the truth is, is a manifestation of the Spirit. So Tillich said the breakthrough of people like Plato and Aristotle and, and company, that was a, an expression of the Spirit. So I would say, in, in their best expression, these modern political uh, reforms were, were very positive. And we rejoice today when a country throws off oppressive forms of political arrangement, when they throw off you know, uh, monarchies and, and unchallenged authorities and that sort of thing. When something like a balance of power and checks and balance are, are, uh, are um, embraced, we say that's a good thing. So that's the enlightenment. And then look, Brandon, here you and I are, you're in Orlando, I'm in Santa Barbara. We're on these magical machines. There's light illuminating me. There's a microphone in front of me carrying my vocal impulses somehow through a system of wires and don't ask me to explain it. But here you and I are talking to each other. Well, thank God for the Enlightenment. I mean, thank God for the rise of the modern sciences that have enabled us to live infinitely more comfortably and successfully within the world. Our ancestors, not that many generations ago, were spending almost their entire day barely trying to survive. A tiny, tiny handful of people, we know them now as the classic authors, had the time and the leisure to produce something like, you know, the arts and philosophy and so on. Now that, that almost everybody can get an education at a high level, almost everybody has access to, look at through the internet, thank God for the enlightenment, you know, that we have access to almost all the information compiled by the human race. So I say it unabashedly, thank God for the enlightenment in both its political and scientific manifestations. I would never want to go back prior to the enlightenment. When discussing the effects of the Enlightenment today, you've often highlighted how those two streams of the scientific revolution and then the political revolutions led today to things like scientism or the sort of culture of self-invention. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. And, and so on purpose, I was trying to get very lyrical and very uh, effusive in my praise of the Enlightenment. And I mean every word of it. And I wouldn't want to gainsay any of it. Okay, so that, I hope that's super clear to people. But as you suggest, you know, it's, it's Karl Barth's line, I always remember, is see the moon in yonder sky, tis only half that meets the eye. I, I mean, or Carl Jung that would say, the brighter the light, often the darker the shadow uh, that's cast. Right? If you have the bright light shining on something, and that's the enlightenment, right? Light, Aufklärung in, uh, in uh, German, and it's the Le siècle des Lumières in French, the, the century of lights, you know, light. Light is great. I love light. But the brighter the light, often the darker the shadow. Okay. And the two ways that you put it there is what I've argued. We love the sciences, but we don't like scientism. And that's a shadow of the Enlightenment. Namely, the reduction of all knowledge to the scientific form of knowledge. What's real and true is now reduced to what we can know and control through the scientific method. Now, now, look long time ago, not just today, but a long time ago, to early critics of the Enlightenment, people like Goethe in Germany, um, making exactly that argument. We stumble when we get so enthusiastic about the sciences that we overlook non-scientific but altogether rational ways of knowing when we tend to marginalize or bracket or reduce 
the arts, the humanities, poetry, literature, philosophy, religion, maybe above all. What's often the great target of enlightenment enthusiasm, epistemically speaking, religion, right? We got to overcome these old, uh, you know, superstitions. That's a shadow side of enlightenment. We want to approve everything that's positive about it, but also caution and over-enthusiasm in the direction of scientism. And then, as you say, what's the shadow side of the great move toward liberation and, and political freedom? Freedom and equality, you might say, are the two great values of the political enlightenment, right? And for a lot of people in our country, that's what politics is about, is increasing freedom and equality. Okay, good, both of them. But what's the limit? The limit is I so valorize freedom and equality that I become the arbiter of good and evil. I'm free to determine who I am. I'm free to determine the meaning of my life. I'm free to determine all moral value. And don't press me because we're all equal. Don't tell me your view is better than mine. Don't tell me that I can't express what I you know, am, am feeling. That's the culture of self-invention, which I think is freedom and equality run amok. It's, it's the legitimate expression of the Enlightenment politically, but now pressed to an extreme. Um, now, having said all that, welcome to the postmodern critique. So I'm not just speaking here as a you know, religious person. Read all the postmodern philosophers. Modern here meaning enlightenment, right? If you're postmodern, it means you're standing at a critical remove from the accomplishments of the enlightenment, not gainsaying them, but moving beyond them to a critical position. And a lot of the work I did before I got drawn into the church administration when I was writing books uh, was precisely on that point. One of my books is subtitled Toward a Post-Liberal Catholicism. And I'm using liberal there as a, as a, a you know, equivalent term to modernity or the Enlightenment. Um, anyway, I'm bazooing a bit, but the two very positive expressions of the Enlightenment can give rise to two distortions. I mentioned earlier that there's been somewhat of a resurgence and in interest in the Enlightenment, and several books have come out focusing on this. Probably the most famous one is Steven Pinker's number one New York Times bestselling title, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and progress. I know both of us have kind of spent a little time in the book. We haven't read it cover to cover. Um, this isn't meant to be a thorough book review, but I want to yeah. use some of the ideas in the book as a launching point for discussion. So Steven Pinker is a cognitive scientist, a professor at Harvard, by all accounts, a very smart man. Uh, and in this book, he tries to make the case that the Enlightenment was a nearly complete triumph. Um, the book, again, was an instant bestseller. The endorsements on the back are probably among the best I've ever seen. For example, uh, Bill Gates said, Enlightenment Now is not only the best book Pinker has ever written, it's my new favorite book of all time. Uh, I don't think you'd get <laughs> more enthusiastic awesome. than that. Now, yeah. um, here's what I want to focus on. In the book's description, it <laughs> says this, in 75 jaw-dropping graphs, Pinker shows that life Health, prosperity, safety, peace, knowledge, and happiness are all on the rise, not only in the West, but worldwide. And this progress is not the result of some cosmic force. It is a gift of the Enlightenment, the conviction that reason and science can enhance human flourishing. 
What do you think about Pinker's overall assessment of our situation today? As far as it goes, that's right. I, I wouldn't contest any of it. I mean, have, have the advance of the sciences improved life? Yeah, in almost every way, physically speaking, right? So uh, our ability to live longer, to be better uh, fed, better clothed, to live in greater um, comfort, uh, freer of disease. Yeah, absolutely, which is why I never want to go back behind it, why I rejoice. You know, when people, let's say, uh, Bill Gates, you mentioned, uh, if he you know donates some of his enormous fortune to work on disease control in parts of the world, terrific. Where does that come from? Well, from the sciences. Where do they come from? Well, from the Enlightenment. Terrific. Terrific. So according to those measures of, of health and physical flourishing and length of life and all that, yeah, of course. Of course. And thank God for the Enlightenment. Now, the book also says, far from being a naive hope, the Enlightenment, we now know, has worked. Now, I, I guess what I'd want to ask you is, do you agree that it's quote-unquote worked? And then how do you think he's defining that word worked? By what criteria yeah. is he measuring success? Well, and, and there's, there's, of course, our problem. So, so affirming everything he said, but are, are we looking at life through a, a pretty narrow lens, you know? A dimension of life. So all the things that he goes through, yeah, no question about it. No question about it. But is there more to life than that? And does the scientism that's often implicit in, especially that kind of effusive glorification of the Enlightenment, lead to a, a impoverishment of life in other ways? You know, has the Enlightenment improved the arts? Well, I mean, I think it's it's a matter of indifference, really. Has the Enlightenment improved our philosophical grasp? of the meaning of life. I, I, I don't think so. I mean, if you succumb to the scientism within the Enlightenment, it often disimproves our grasp of those things. Has it given us a clearer sense of how God is operating and how God is calling us? Not at all. I mean, I don't think it's really contributed to that. Uh, my point there is there's more to life than these measures that he has. Without for a second, I'm not proposing an either or. Not at all. I would say, in fact, that it's God, the unconditioned good, working through our reason to give rise to these wonderful things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But the danger implicit in the way he's analyzing is a certain shutting down of the analysis and a focusing in on certain dimensions of life to the expense of others that also need to be uh, examined and looked at. You've mentioned a few of those missing variables. I think for me, the two most glaring omissions are morality and religion. Yeah. Like, how are yeah. we faring by those two criteria? Because today, you know, we've talked so many times about the religious dwindling in the West, the rise of the nuns. And then moral uh, by moral metrics, would we be able to say that today in the 21st century, by and large, we're a, a more morally healthy culture than, say, the 16th, 15th, 14th centuries. I, I don't know. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And, and see, another a face of scientism is we so buy into the scientistic sort of take on things that we think of knowledge as, oh, yeah, it's move up, it moves up like this. You go from, you know, the ancients and the Ptolemy and then you advance then Galileo and then Newton and everything just keeps getting better and better, clearer and clearer. I'm not going to go back to Ptolemy to figure out how the how the planets are situated. I'm going to look at the latest science. Fine. That's true when it comes to the physical sciences. 
But is it true, for example, that the poetry written today is necessarily better than T.S. Eliot or than Dante or than Homer? I mean, give me a break. Or that we see things with greater moral clarity today than Thomas Aquinas did or than Plato did. I mean, by no means. That our political um, uh, philosophical perspective is, is necessarily better than what Plato had. Well, you know, you can debate that, but uh, we succumb to a sort of scientific prejudice when it comes to the advance of knowledge. There's a lot more to life than what the Enlightenment illumines and delivers. You know, and of course, Brandon, uh, getting out of the religion aside for a second, many of the postmodern critics, beginning with people like Goethe and, and Pascal even, Pascal is a is a, a forefather of postmodernity in many ways, because Bright lights, again. Good? Yeah. Yeah, really good. When you're dissecting something or you're doing surgery or you have to see with great clarity what's going on. But are bright lights always the best thing you know, in life? Who wants to have a, a romantic dinner under bright light? You know, I'd be a little bit playful there, but it's making the point that um, uh, the aggressive, illuminating light of the mind is not always the best way to approach some of the deeper and subtler questions of life. The Enlightenment style of reason. Now think of someone like Alistair McIntyre, you know, who's justice, who's rationality? So you say, I'm a person of reason. Yeah, the type of reason, scientific, Western European, uh, analytical reason. That's one type of it. It's not the same as Aristotle's reason or Thomas Aquinas's. Um, or that of, of postmodern thinkers. So it's, it's all the things that are left uh, ignored or unenlightened by the Enlightenment focus that become uh, interesting. That sound means it's time for our weekly question from one of our listeners. If you would like to ask Bishop Barron a question, just visit askbishopbarron.com. You can record your question there on any device. Today we hear from Nick in Rhode Island, and he's got a question about the Old Testament in the Bible. So here's Nick's question. Hi, Bishop Barron. This is Nick from Rhode Island. One of the things I'm constantly seeing Christians challenged on these days is the Mosaic Law, specifically why Christians seem to adhere to the law for teachings on things such as homosexuality, but disregard other parts of it as no longer applying to us. How does the church decide which parts of the Mosaic Law and other Old Testament laws apply to us today within the context of the new covenant with Christ? Yeah, good. In some ways, you you give away the answer when you say the church, because See, we don't. We Catholics don't hold to a sola scriptura reading, where it's simply the Bible alone. But rather, it's the, the Bible as as interpreted by the Church, meaning this long uh, tradition of of reading and explaining and responding to questions. This process, by the way, going on even within the Bible itself. Think of how the New Testament appropriates and reads elements of of the Old Testament. Now, let me give you Thomas Aquinas's uh, resolution, which is kind of a classic one. Thomas said there are three expressions of, of law in the Old Testament. There's the moral precepts of the law, there are the ceremonial precepts, and the juridical precepts. The ceremonial having to do with liturgy and so on, juridical having to do with certain types of you know punishments and so on. Thomas says the moral law remains in place. 
Because the moral law of the Old Testament roughly corresponds to what we call the natural law. So um, when the Old Testament speaks about moral issues, that remains very much in vogue. Thomas says the juridical and ceremonial precepts are valid in the measure that they are anticipations of what will be fulfilled in Christ. So think of all of the um, ceremonial precepts about about sacrifice and about priestly vesture and and the the way that uh, the Jerusalem temple ought to be run and all that business. Thomas would see all of that as being taken up into the one great priestly sacrifice of Christ. So those don't remain in place the same way because they've been They've been fulfilled and brought up in Christ. All of which see begs the question that, that you are anticipating, that it's the church as it appropriates and reads the Bible that makes those uh, distinctions. But think moral law remains in place. The other two are uh, valuable as symbolic anticipations of, of the Lord. Bishop, I, re- I remember as a Protestant really struggling with this question, because if you, if you don't have a magisterium, a church, yeah. that can adjudicate these questions. If you're right. just playing with sola scriptura, it's just you and the Bible trying to figure it out, it's really hard to make those distinctions. So wouldn't this be a case where this highlights the need for some yeah. sort of arbiter? Think of even, Brandon, in the Acts of the Apostles when when Peter resists you know, the vision where the, all these animals come down on the, on the sheet and the, all these unclean animals and, and the voice is take and eat and no, no, I'm not going to do that. But then the voice clarifies that, that these things have been made clean, etc. Well, that represents, if you want, this development as the early church was trying to appropriate its Jewish heritage. What do we do with all that? And someone like Paul, you know, who's very clear about, no, it's justification by, by grace through faith and not by works of the law. Now, what did he mean? seems to me he didn't mean that, that we're now abrogating the moral law. What he meant was a lot of these ceremonial and juridical precepts of the old law are not the means by which we're justified because they've been taken up into Christ. So see, Thomas, I think, is commenting on Paul there. But all to your point of the church adjudicating finally how to read these things. Well, thanks for listening to this Word on Fire show episode about the Enlightenment. A couple quick reminders before we wrap up. One is, I hope by now you've gotten your copy of Bishop Barron's new book titled Letter to a Suffering Church, A Bishop Speaks on the Sexual Abuse Crisis. Many, many, many people have signed up to get their copy or to order copies from their parish, and we invite you to join them. You can get one copy for free. You just cover the shipping, or you can order 20 or more copies for your friends, for a group, for your whole parish for just a dollar a copy plus free shipping all of the proceeds go to charities that serve people who have been sexually abused so you can find out more and get your copy at wordonfireshow.com slash letter that's the website wordonfireshow.com slash letter finally a shout out to three of our great patrons john starks jr mark hoagland sal rangel guys thanks so much for supporting this show if you'd like to join them and help this show reach more people just visit wordonfireshow.com slash patron thanks so much for listening we'll see you next week on the word on fire show we'll be right back.